You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So one day in 1936, a group of young artists are sitting in a Paris cafe. Pablo Picasso comments on one of the women's bracelets, saying how anything can be wrapped in fur. She replies in jest, saying, even this teacup? And they continued to make obnoxious jokes, demanding the waiter bring them more fur. Now, in what seems like the ultimate sort of obnoxious hipster artist move, Merritt Oppenheim actually took that joke and made it into a real work of art, which was later bought by MoMA and is today considered to be the quintessential surrealist object. I feel like who art ed? Try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off the great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Janet Taylor, an artist, art teacher at the high school level, and an art teacher's art teacher, <laughs> doing stuff with the colleges. Um, you know, you've been working with the Art of Ed University for a while. You're just doing all the things. I feel like... I'm always seeing in your feed that you're presenting in this place and that place and working with this college or this high school. Thank you for taking the time to come join me here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, nice to be back again. It's been a while. <laughs> it's It's been a while, and I appreciate that you are so flexible. It's so I, I feel so funny, like, when I asked you if you would have time to to join me and which artist would you like to talk about, you had said, was it Merritt Johnson? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking through my, my messages and I just see Merritt, totally different spelling. And I thought, oh, Merritt Oppenheim, like, you know, object is on the AP art history list. This will be perfect. Let's talk about it. So I appreciate that you're willing to talk about a different Merritt today. Um, I'm always happy to talk about anybody, right? It's so fun to talk about all these artists. I love your podcast. It's great. There's, Thank you. There's so much good stuff to cover. And today, because I do know you are a high school teacher and I teach at the elementary, but I, I still appreciate the challenges our students go through, I'm trying to make a purposeful effort to cover a lot of stuff from the AP art history list because those kids got to learn about 250 different artists and works. And this is one from that list, Merritt Oppenheim. Now, she was born October 6th, 1913 in Berlin. And she was named after, I'm 
going to struggle with this pronunciation as I struggle with all pronunciations. Maritlene, I'm going with that. He <laughs> um, was a kid from a novel, um, Green Henry. I guess Maritlene was the character from the book, basically like a wild child living off in the woods. And I feel like that wild streak um, aptly named there. You know, I don't know if names really sort of determine who you are or we start to see those connections after the fact and sort of implanted on there. But I feel like that's a nice bit of foreshadowing because she definitely kind of marched to her own drum. In 1914, her father, who was a doctor, he had to serve in World War One. I. I mean, pretty much anybody of a certain age had to serve in the Great Wars. It feels weird calling it the Great Wars. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a Great War, but great in the sense of it being massive. But Merritt's mother took the kids to live in Switzerland with her parents at that time. And so while she's in Switzerland, Oppenheim is exposed to just tons of art. Her family, like I said, her dad's a doctor, obviously an educated um, family. They are getting into the culture. And she just fell in love with the new modern art movements at that time. Feels uh, Modern art, I feel like, is a term we should clarify. When we're talking about modern in the art context, we're talking about stuff 100 years ago. Uh, <laughs> right, versus contemporary, right? Like, it's a very difficult uh, fine line to define, isn't that? When we talk about it as, in terms of vocabulary, right? Yeah, and when we're talking about those historical periods, the modern era is like the late 19th to mid-20th century. Um, I always... I always just explain it to my students with like the idea that the modernists were trying to get down to something that was sort of timeless and universal. And it's that hubris of artists and the young generation always thinking that what they are doing will always be cool. You know? <laughs> but of course, it never is. So she's looking at the new modern art at that time, expressionism, cubism, fauvism. All of the isms were going on at that point. And in 1928, her father had her reading Carl Jung. Um, Carl Jung is, or was, I, I suppose I should say, a psychologist. Um, uh, I believe he studied from Freud, if I recall correctly. I think so too. But, yeah, or they were around the same time. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I believe. Um, Young learned a bit from Freud, but expanded on his theories. And and um, while Freud was talking a lot about the unconscious and sort of like the personal ideas of like your personal unconscious and everything like that, Carl Jung was talking more about the collective unconscious. And I think of it more as like the uh, sort of societal implications of, of things, the socialized aspects that lead to our personalities. Um, think like Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces, these archetypal figures and everything like that. So she's reading about what at that time was sort of cutting edge psychological theory. And she begins recording her dreams. I guess she would continue to do that, writing down in detail, analyzing her dreams throughout her life. Um, so 1929, she's at this this point, what, like 16 years old? 
Um, she's looking at Paul Clay, goes to a retrospective of his works, and it just it kind of expands her mind to the possibilities of abstraction in art. Um, you know, Merritt Oppenheim is often sort of pigeonholed as just one of many surrealist artists, but she was kind of dabbling in different things. I think what she liked about the surrealist movement was that it was so open to different forms of expression and different experimentations. I, f- I find that interesting that you, you know, so first of all, I just have to pause. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, the surrealism and the dreams really go hand in hand, right? Is like trying to understand and make sense of what's going on or symbolisms that kind of go into that. So I can understand why she, this is kind of the Paul Clay thing was interesting to me because it makes sense to me with her connection um, to surrealism and Paul Clay also, I think had a lot of um, his work really talked a lot about like childhood and um, kind of Mm -hmm. the, the inner workings of that too. But his work is not like hers at all. Like, so it's really interesting to me how that kind of was an inspiration for her for abstraction. Um, so I found that very curious as well. It's always interesting to see what artists are inspired by because they don't always, it doesn't always reflect in their work, if that makes sense. I don't know. What do you think? Well, and I, I just think of it as, you know, she was one of those people who just went through the world like a sponge, just soaking up all of these disparate influences. And that's how she came up with something new and different. And I think like a lot of artists, she just kind of felt like labels were confining. I think that's really where the tension came with surrealism because, you know, it was the surrealist label and the philosophy attached to it. She felt like she had other broader interests and didn't want to be held down to just that one style in that one category. So... 1932, she's like 18 years old. She moves to Paris to study art, primarily painting from what I understand. And within just a year, she's like getting a big break. I mean, she meets Hans Arp. I cannot pronounce names. Even short ones. Hans Arp, uh, Alberto Giacometti. They visit her studio. They liked what they saw enough to invite her to participate in a surrealist show. And She's like befriending all of these big names. And I I know that like earlier in their careers, they weren't all like the big names from art history that we think of them now. But it just seems like at this point in Paris, everybody was hanging out with each other. So she becomes friends with like Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, Max Ernst, Andre Breton. Um, And I guess we should start talking about like, her best known work here. And as I've already said, it was Object, um, also parenthetically called Breakfast in Fur. I'm not going to attempt the French pronunciation there for it. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? 
then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. She made this in 1936, and as the story goes, one day she's at a cafe with Pablo Picasso and Dora Marr. Marr was a photographer, poet, painter, and she and Picasso were also romantically um, entangled. So they're having lunch, and Picasso looks at this fur-lined bracelet that Merritt Oppenheim is wearing, and he made some comment like you can put fur on anything and it just becomes so luxurious and and she responds by saying like even this teacup and they're laughing and then you know she has to take the joke even further and says to the waiter more fur please or whatever which i got to think like delightful and charming if you're at that table but can you imagine being the waiter like that has to be so confusing like you're just trying to do your job and someone is requesting fur and laughing i i don't know um so (laughs) she goes on with this because and this is one of those moments where i'm like i like her she does not know the meaning of taking a joke too far and then goes off to her studio and takes a teacup and a saucer and a spoon and carefully and methodically wraps them all in fur. And that is where we get her most famous piece, Object, from 1936. And and that waiter, now that waiter's, like, grandson is going, that was my dad. (laughs) 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 Who provided me fur? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) probably complaining about how Picasso was a bad tip. Probably, or something like probably. <laughs> Tried to pay in a sketch on a napkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's, let's shift the focus a little bit from like the history and background. I want to get into a little bit of the analysis of the piece now. So as you're looking at this, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? What's jumping out at you? Okay, so this is actually, um, so I've, I've taught sculpture for quite a long time, and this is a piece that I often show my students, and I know when you look at it the first time, you're like, it's kind of one of those pieces that you're like, okay, and you kind of are not sure what to do with it, right? It's it's a literally a teacup, <clears throat> a saucer, and then a little spoon resting on the saucer, and all of it is um, covered in fur. And it's not just like, <laughs> it's not just like covered in fur. It has this really beautiful um, attention to movement and application to it, right? The outside of the saucer is like this 
very light uh, fur color and it kind of swoops around the outside. So it's kind of soft, almost like you'd be holding the saucer and, and kind of petting, right? <laughs> like petting it, you know? And then on the inside is the fur is like coming up out of the saucer, you know? It's like aligned, it's lined on the inside so that the fur kind of swoops up. So you can imagine if you were to like pick this up and drink out of it, like actually, the interesting idea of this functional object, right, being no longer really functional because you're you're drinking out of it. You've got fur in your mouth. It's like so disgusting. All sorts of health code violations <laughs> right? there. Oh my god, yes. And you know, like anytime you get like one piece of hair in your mouth while you're eating or drinking, it's like the you know you most repulsive thing, right? Isn't it the most annoying thing? I'm dying inside as you're just describing it, <laughs> right? So it's pretty interesting to me um, to look at this in the idea of, you know, form and function, right? So you have this um, really aesthetically pleasing um, work of arts or pieces that have no longer really true function to them. Um, and then, you know, looking at it a little bit more, um, it has some interesting... I, I kind of equate it, it looks like something I would see at like a natural history museum, right? Like something you would see um, like an artifact found way back when because of the type of fur that was used, right? It's not just like poodle hair or something like that, right? It's like, what is it, like Chinese gazelle or something? It was a Chinese gazelle, yeah. yeah. So it's like very, I don't know, methodically lined, very meticulously crafted i would say you could tell there's a lot of care that went into this um so a lot of intention right yeah she had to work really hard to make those objects useless um and i i think there's something kind of funny about that like just in the playfulness of it like Especially when we consider that historical context, this was the modern period and other things in modern art and architecture, you had mentioned form follows function. Um, Louis Sullivan in the late 19th, early 20th century was coining that term um, saying form must ever follow function. And so like she's totally disregarding that and and aggressively so you know um the other thing that i so going back this is why i was like i think i'm getting ahead of myself when we're talking about like data and surrealism right but like this is a great example too of this play on words play on uh context of materials and i think you know prior to this time period there wasn't a lot of that right a lot of it was very um purposeful and aesthetically pleasing or um, had a very traditional foundation. I mean, obviously we have your isms that you talked about where things started to change, right? Artists started to look at um, artwork a little differently, but um, the data movement, like one of my favorites, um, because, you know, it's kind of this absurdity and thinking about how, how pieces come together to create a new context for that artwork or new meaning, right? And so in this piece is really interesting to me because it's, you know, the idea of this teacup, you know, something that was traditionally very feminine, very proper high society, and it's wrapped in a fur that is very like primal 
animalistic, right? Um, it is, but also like the fur is also a high society thing. Oh, good point. You know, point. like yeah, yeah. It, it would also be very fancy and elegant to be draping yourself in a portion of an animal carcass. Mm-hmm. Like that's true. Which that's true. which I think on some level, the fact that you're taking this high high society thing of like you know, a fancy teacup and this high society thing of fur, and you're combining them to make something that is useless and revolting. (laughs) But also gorgeous. (laughs) But also, well. And appealing, right? (laughs) Well, you're you're right, because there is this sensory engagement that it does look soft and inviting um, in in the tactile sense, like to touch. To touch it, it feels like it would be nice and luxurious in some ways. But like to use it from its intentional, from its original purpose to drink from it would be revolting. And so there's this sort of push-pull happening in there. And I think it does call out some absurdity of social norms in some ways um, as I think about it more and more. Like at first, like you said, my first reaction is just like, huh, that's odd. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like you were saying before I rudely interrupted, because you were you were getting at the fur being this primal Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And I think earlier you had also said it felt like this ancient artifact. Yes. Yeah. And I agree there, too. And And it's weird that it has both of them. It does, right? Um. And then the other thing that's interesting, so so again, showing this piece to students, for example, or even as you know, an audience member, um, looking at one piece out of context of her body of work, as you mentioned, um, I think sometimes doesn't also give weight or gravity to what this what she's trying to do in all of her works, right? So looking at her kind of body of work is pretty interesting um, in regards of how she played with different, um, I don't, what are you, like found objects, but also, you know, wearable objects um, and how she kind of re- repurposed them. Um, and they're very simple, you know, nothing is, you know, like this 25 foot painting or something, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like an object or a couple objects put together. Um, you know, she has this one where it's like a, like a white glove, um, you know, that's a woman would wear. And on the f- top of it has like vein work done on it. You know, right? So it's like this idea of inside outside kind of, or again, that high society covering, but also this like repulsive inner workings that we don't really want to think about, or we want to cover up. Um, she has uh, two like boots, I guess, um, shoes, boots that are kind of slightly pointed towards each other. And it's called the couple. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple other ones that she has. Um, She has, oh, this is one of my favorites. She has two women's like pumps, you know, um, Mm -hmm. high heels, right? Where she's like flipped them upside down on a platter and put those little, I don't even know what they're called, like the little chicken, they look like little hats on the chicken legs. You you know what I'm talking about? 
you know. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about, but I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not a culinary. You're not a culinary artist. expert. I, um, I feel like I do not know the terms for those. I feel like I should have looked that up beforehand. But anyway, so they're like on the little legs, and they look make it look, you know. And she's twined it, and it looks like a chicken, right, or a hen, a yeah. Cornish hen, or something like that, on the platter. Um, and she has like a a table, um, like a glass round a side table that you would have out in a garden or or by your couch or something right and then the legs are like chicken feet so just this play on these objects i think is is interesting i i kind of i don't know kyle if you have thoughts on this but i always find it interesting what of all of those pieces of work that she has and as a body that kind of say something why this particular piece is the most famous or known about her Okay, so I would I would point to a couple of things. One thing I would say is this was bought by MoMA. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, when it. It, <laughs> when it when it goes into certain institutions, it elevates its status. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Grant Wood's American Gothic became a sensation, I think largely because it was bought by the Art Institute like right away. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is in MoMA in New York, um, I think she wanted like a thousand Swiss francs, but they're like, we'll give you 250. And she took it because who's going to turn down, (laughs) you know, like I'd pay them to put my work in there. That's like a whole nother, I feel like that's a whole nother podcast is like talking about (laughs) (laughs) the art industry, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the art industry. But, you know, that's the piece that's in the big name institution that gives it that stamp of validity. So I think that's one part of it. I think also um, there's something that is just so perfect about this piece that it hits on so many different themes or hints at so many different themes you know you talked about the the teacup being sort of a feminine symbol and then you combine that with the name being object and right away the feminist lens i'm thinking like okay feminist symbol and object and and all of the stuff that we're doing to dress it up and all, you know all of that I think there's also something about the fact that you talked about how you love the playfulism of Dada and the surrealism. I really don't like a lot of Dada work. Oh my God. And the. How are we friends, Kyle? (laughs) I am somebody who absolutely loves play. You know, like I'm. I'm doing a presentation for the Art of Ed's Now conference talking about gamification in the classroom and how fun is a legit learning target and how we need to emphasize play and fun. But what I don't like about a lot of the Dada artists is as they're doing stuff like making – you know, a random collage by just dropping pieces of paper and letting them fall where they may and stuff like that – a lot of the craft gets lost, a lot of the design principles. And I know that's a part of the process and it's conceptual art and all of that sort of stuff. But one of the things that I think makes this piece more accessible to a broader audience is the fact that it is very finely and meticulously crafted. That fur doesn't land there accidentally. You know, the the movement of the strands of fur described the form as well as she wrapped it and, and all of that sort of stuff. 
I, I think craftsmanship matters a little bit, at least for a broader audience. Okay. Well, I will buy that for this one in particular. You know, we can go on a, on a fight about Dada on another podcast. <laughs> I can talk about <laughs> Hannah Hook. I would love to talk about her. But, uh, you know, because, you know, there's also process. There's There's things that have occurred throughout the years, right, that we can appreciate because they happened, right? Like, the fact that if even if there is this uh, movement of, you know, even right now, contemporary, right, is this like the intuitive art, which a lot of my artwork is um, with that kind of idea, too. And I think there's there's the piece of like, it's not just it's intuitive because you already have the skill and the form and the function that that's innate in your you know understanding. And so it's about how it's approached from a different lens at this time in the context that's happening. Right. So like Dada happening, you know, the, the, the happenings or the, like you say, tossing out a a piece of glass. It's like, it's like, yes. And right. It's kind of like the same context you could say about Picasso, like how people are, are always like, Oh, my kindergartner could do well. Yeah. Okay. But did they, and also like Picasso had years of extensive, highly realistic work that he could do, you know, and, and how he broke that. And so that is what makes it so interesting to me, actually, with the Dada movement, even more specifically than surrealism, right? So surrealism really does dig into more of like symbolism and things like that. And, and what interests me personally about Dada is kind of the, the, frustration with the status quo and with the expectations that are the rules that are kind of put on artists at that time when they were also dealing with a world that was uh very conflicted right with with the wars going on with a lot of fighting um a lot of tension and a lot of people just in general trying to um understand right and i think you know which kind of clearly relates to what you know, is going on now for us. Right. I think that's like an ongoing topic. Right. I, I was just going to, I was just going to make a sarcastic comment about how like, luckily we solved all I those know. things, but, <laughs> but, yeah. but in all seriousness, you are right. The Dada movement was a reaction to just the horrors of, I mean, we're talking about a movement that happened along with two world wars. Right. Like I mean, right and in the middle is when it kind of started. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was a lot of stuff happening that was trauma collectively people were trying to process. And just to be clear, I don't discount like I don't discount work that is um, that is about process and those conceptual pieces and, and all of that. Um I do appreciate that. And that's why for my final segment, I talk about like, where does this piece belong? Uh Is this one we learn from? Is this one, you know, like all of that. But um, the initial question was, why does this piece stand out among her body of work? (laughs) You're right. And I think for a broader audience, there are a lot of people who look at Picasso and say like, well, my kid could do that. And there's some truth to that. That's never been my criticism of Picasso, to be honest. Even his his stuff that looks rough and childish – there's there's strong technique there the principles of design are at play like he, he is showing st- like there's that that term sprezzatura the the studied carelessness and i i think 
even at his, you know, most simplified, he was doing stuff extremely well. It was well executed for his intentions. My problem with Picasso was just that the man was a monster. Okay. But so, you know. did you hear the story? So, okay. <laughs> so I, I read this story about um, Picasso and Merritt and specifically this artwork. I cannot verify it's true. <laughs> right. But I heard that because she is also like a very strong feminist was kind of working through the, the roles of gender and, yeah. um, and whatnot, that it even, irritated her even more so that Picasso is even attached to this um, story, right? It's like another man kind of giving the weight to this piece, if that makes sense. So it's it's a very interesting <laughs> yeah, like dichotomy when you really think about how complex these stories can be. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it in that sense. Like, I always thought... It was just kind of a funny story about a work of art being developed based on a joke between friends. Between friends and like like you said, like the fact that they were these artists bouncing off ideas and it was just kind of like a fun off play. You're right. Like who would think anything else? But yeah, I, I, I heard that. And now that you're saying that, you know, when we talked about this, you initially asked, like, why why this piece? And and my first thought was this was the one that was bought by MoMA. And, you know, Picasso is another name brand in, in the art history world where, like, his name being attached to it probably did give it a little bit of weight socially, just like just like if um, – you know, if if it had happened because he, she was out with Marcel Duchamp or if she were out with um, Guggenheim or someone like right. that, someone who has that that weight in the art world instead of just like a random no name artist. Right. Like if she were out at the cafe with Kyle Wood, <laughs> people probably wouldn't care so it's, much about the terrible joke that I make. Well, it's that and also that time. Which, again, like you said, I'm so glad we solved all these problems. But at that time, right, that was like <laughs> men were dominating the that world as well, right? Like men dominate that. And so having that connection, it's not like Merritt was talking to, um, oh, who's another, like Frida Kahlo or something like, you know, just make that up, right? Like, it's not like, the, you know, there's, there's other pieces to, in play, which is also interesting to me. Yeah. And as we talk about, like, the historical context of, you know, she was a surrealist doing stuff with found objects um, in line with Marcel Duchamp, who always gets credit for um, creating the first ready-mades. Mm-hmm. Listeners who who went way back to my Marcel Duchamp episode would recall that there was a female artist um, – Baroness uh, Elsa Freetag Loringhoven. Yes. Right? You know who I'm talking about? Who created a a ready-made like Mm -hmm. a year before Duchamp did. And so, um, you know, there is always going to be a little bit of that uh, issue of gender and equity at play and who gets credit for their innovations and sometimes who gets elevated because they get the stamp of approval because of somebody who is already in a privileged space. There's, there's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I feel like part of the, the greatness of object is it's hinting at all of those things. Mm -hmm. 
and I th- I think that's why it is on. It's in the history books. It's in the museum, and it's on the tests. You know, we're talking what, like eighty years after it was made, right? Incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. So I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loop, British for bastard. The yeah, there's a the loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> um, this one's definitely for the museum. This one's definitely for the museum. I think it's a keeper. I I love again what we talk about in this kind of to summarize. Right? It's like this yeah. very simple object, literally object. Right? It has so much context to it that if you really think about and understand the pieces in play, I think um, that's really, really important in history, right? It's really important to help educate and learn about and and talk about and, you know, inspire. So, Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, as I was thinking about this piece for so long, I was always torn between the lab and and the Louvre because, you know, this is one of those pieces that I, I learn from. And the more I look at it, the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it, the more connections I draw, the more that I do learn from it. And so in some ways it feels like a piece for the lab. But the reason that I ultimately land on the museum, just like you, is because – this is a piece that I don't even have to know all of the history behind to recognize some good and appreciate and have almost that instantaneous sort of sensory reaction to it mm-hmm. because it engages not only the the look, but like I imagine the feel of it both in my hand and then ugh, in my <laughs> mouth. Um, and... And like, I don't even have to do the research to to engage with it, right? To connect, and I, I think yeah. that's that's one of those things that really elevates a piece and and makes it so strong, is that it can pull you in. You know, you you learn from it and and all of that, but like it it stands up on its own even before I do the research, and I think that's that's. Um, really impressive and and that's what makes this a standout and that's why it's so often referred to as the quintessential surrealist piece bravo merit we're with you <laughs> well done merit um well, I want to say once again, thank you very much, Janet Taylor. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thanks. I appreciate you having me.
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.